This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. Welcome, Afropolitans, to our latest installment of Beyond Corona, South Africa and the world after the pandemic. We are still living in the grip of COVID-19. It's also winter, so we're also living in the cold confines of a lockdown. And of course, it may be very difficult for some of us to really look beyond the present and imagine what the world will be after this lockdown ends and perhaps the virus itself recedes. But we do know that, of course, there will be a different world. We will recover and we will survive this and perhaps the bigger questions now are will we go back to what we had as best as we can or do we seize this opportunity to shape a new and a more inclusive country and a more sustainable and equitable world over the next 40 minutes or so we'll be talking about such issues with two distinguished guests this is of course the latest installment of the beyond corona south africa and the world after the pandemic podcast which is brought to you by kfm in association with the conrad adenauer foundation and quite interestingly for this particular podcast i suppose the starting point may be a bit different in that we can start off by saying perhaps one of the few benefits of the lockdown induced by the virus itself is the fact that some of the activities that we regard as quite harmful to the environment have been curtailed i am of course referring to carbon emissions in particular and over the next 40 minutes we will actually just be talking about the question of sustainable development decarbonization and climate change and all the things that are harmful to the environment and how those have actually then been brought to the spotlight again by this particular pandemic that you're dealing with. On the line, I am joined by two guests. The first one is Professor Mark Swilling from the University of Stellenbosch, where he is a distinguished professor of sustainable development and also serves as the co-director of the Center for Complex Systems in Transition. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. We also have um, an activist and a climate activist here, Mr. Alex Lenferna, who's actually the secretary for the Climate Justice Coalition. He's also a member of the climate, is a, is a climate justice campaigner in his own right, and he also has a PhD from the University of Washington. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me. Now, gentlemen, I obviously want to start with just the context. I mean, for a lot of people, the issues around climate change, you know, carbon emissions have become issues that have become perhaps a bit elusive for the layman to understand it's always complicated by the matter of the vested interests that are always part of the conversation. So, Professor Suling, just take kind of step back. I mean, why does it matter, the issue of climate change? Why is it something that we should be considering not only now, but something that should permanently occupy our minds as citizens? Well, what it basically boils down to is that industrial culture, industrial civilization depends on the combustion engine and the process of combusting fossil fuels, which have for billions of years been buried below the surface of, of the earth. We dig them out we, in the form of gas, in the form uh, of coal, uh, and in the form of oil, and we combust them in order to drive the global economy. But as soon as you combust these, these fossil fuels, you release uh, pollution into the atmosphere, in particular CO2. Um, and, and CO2, when it accumulates in the atmosphere, uh, is a carrier of heat. 
And as a result, we have, uh, we have the phenomenon of global warming. And as the atmosphere warms, we have instability in our, in our climate pattern. So where it used to rain, it no longer rains. Where, where we used to have deserts, it's starting to rain. And, and so there's, there's a kind of breakdown of the traditional weather patterns uh, that have existed over a couple of hundred thousand years during which our current civilization has emerged. So that's really the core of, of the issue. Uh, we are moving into an era where we cannot predict the climate and the weather patterns that we are dependent on as a human species. Professor, I mean, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like, you know, the way we've been conducting ourselves over perhaps the larger part of the last century, we've really been burning our way into progress. And of course, everybody always celebrates the industrialization of the way of work and the world of work. And these are the things that are seen as positive as spillover effects of perhaps the second and third industrial revolutions. Are you now saying that this has come at the expense of perhaps the longer term sustainability of the universe itself? Yeah, it, 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 uh, it definitely has. And there's a, a, an extraordinary scientific consensus that if nothing changes, uh, life as we know it within the next uh, 50 years will effectively come to an end. Uh, there will be levels of, of warming in certain parts of the globe where there are uh, millions and hundreds of millions of people. They just won't be able to live there. They'll have to migrate. Uh, the, 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 the water that we depend on that comes down from the mountains as, as the snow melts in certain parts of the world won't be there. Uh, you won't be able to grow certain crops because it'll be too hot or there won't be enough rain. So yes, uh, all the science shows that business as usual means that life as we know it will not be able to continue uh, into the end, towards the end of the, this, this, this current century. But I just need to make a, a one clear point though. Yes, fossil fuels have powered modern modernization and industrial progress, but that doesn't mean everybody benefited. There is still a large proportion of the world's population living in poverty who have not benefited from this, uh, from this process of industrialization. So it's, it's unequal. Yeah, thank you very much, Professor Soling. Alex, I'd like to bring you into this conversation now. I mean, just firstly, when you talk about the Climate Justice Coalition, what exactly is this Climate Justice Coalition? What does it focus on? And what have been the type of things that have probably become quite key for you during this particular pandemic? Thank you for that. So the Climate Justice Coalition, um, it's a relatively young formation, but it's made up of trade unions, of civil society organizations, community organizations. And what we recognize is that, you know, the climate crisis is not just a scientific issue. I mean, in some, it is underpinned by a scientific understanding, but it's very much an issue that has justice at the heart of it in terms of who gets most impacted, in terms of who causes the problem, so often it's the poorest, um, it is the, the most marginal in our society that get hit hardest by droughts, by flooding, um, by lack of access to food and water, all of which is compounded by uh, the climate crisis. And it's often the rich uh, and the big corporations that contribute the most to the problem, and so justice is at the heart of it. 
And so that's our approach to the climate change issue is really understanding that is the, the political calculus in the crisis and also the moral calculus. And so our work is really to push for solutions that make justice at the heart of how we tackle the climate crisis. And so what we're thinking about in terms of the coalition as we come out of the, the coronavirus is how do we rebuild in a way that is more just, that is more equitable. Um, and so we've, for instance, released a, a recent report um, called No Going Back to Normal. And we did that with the Institute for Economic Justice, really thinking about how do we invest in a way that's more equitable and more sustainable and showing you how doing that and by moving towards more renewable energy, towards more sustainable systems, can also create more just and equitable future for South Africa so that we're not divorcing questions of sustainability from the deeper economic transformation that we need in our country. Rather, they need to work together. And that's really our approach within the coalition. Thank you very much for that, Alex. And I think one sort of takeaway that I've got from both um, your statement and indeed Professor Swilling's statement is perhaps the question of the burden of consequence in that, you know, the countries that are probably the, the biggest culprits in emissions are not the ones where you'd say are shouldering the greatest burden of either the cleanups or even the negative uh, spillover effects of it. I mean, how would you characterize essentially the burden of consequence when we talk about about you know, emissions, for example, and their uh, consequential effects on climate change. I'm happy to jump in there. Um, I, I think South Africa is a really interesting example because we're at one time both a victim and a perpetrator of climate change because we do have this minerals and energy complex uh, very deep in our economy, which is very polluting and was sort of built on the back of a very environmentally degrading, but also uh, labor exploitation was at the, the key of a lot of that or at the heart of it. Um, and so we do have this sort of corporate minerals and energy complex, which is perpetrator of the issue, but then a lot of the impacts fall on you know the poorer South Africans who do not necessarily benefit as much from it. And I think there's a similar dynamic um, at the global level where we see richer global north nations who have contributed the most to the problem, um, the US, the UK, and now increasingly China too. Whereas it's uh, countries across the broader African continent, it's least developed countries, it's the poor, it's the rural communities, um, it's women in particular that most feel the brunt of this problem. Um, so there, there really are these unequal dynamics in terms of how this, this crisis plays out and who's most responsible for it. Professor Swilling, I mean, uh, same question for you, I suppose. When we talk about the burden of consequence, do you also um, observe from some of the data that you've seen that maybe there is indeed an imbalance in really perhaps uh, shouldering the burden of the effects of it? You may have the small, the, the big industrialized countries being the chief drivers of emissions, and yet when you then look at the effects, they've probably found ways to insulate themselves much better than the other countries, which are not contributing as much, but feeling the effect much more than they sort of should. Yeah, sure. So the, the most significant collection of scientific data is by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And in there, uh, um, they issue what are called assessment reports every couple of years. And the, the fourth assessment report, which uh, won the Nobel Prize, uh, was the report that's, that, that demonstrated uh, with scientific data that the continent that is going to suffer most 
and is also going to suffer earliest from the consequences of climate change is Africa. It's also this, Africa is also the continent that has contributed least to the problem. So that gives you in very stark reality uh, the situation that we face. Africa has contributed least to the problem and is going to suffer first and most uh, because climate change is going to impact on a whole bunch of countries which don't have the resources uh, to adapt quickly enough. But it's also, according to that report, up to 50% of Africa's food production could be very seriously negatively affected. And that obviously is going to enhance uh, and, and worsen the suffering of millions and millions of Africans. While at the same time, the perpetrators of, of, of emissions, as Alex has already said, uh, you know, do well out of the continued combustion of fossil fuels to drive their economies. Professor, I think, you know, there might be perhaps some people that are regarded as skeptics or even those that would say are uh, denialists. And I think they would probably uh, tap on what you've just mentioned now and say, well, if we're going to uh, accept that Africa as a continent is not the greatest contributor to emissions, how do we end up with Africa being told that it needs to, you know, clean up its, its game? Because a lot of people are saying, well, we've seen this historically where the big industrialized nations the global north in particular does all these things and then suddenly when we're dealing with the consequences somebody turns to Africa for example and says clean up your game and Africa says no 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 we did nothing to get us to this level why aren't why are we the ones being asked to do something go back and speak to the people that made this mess which would be the bigger nations is that a valid assertion well it, it, it was an argument that was uh, uh, quite strong and actually quite convincing up to about a decade ago, um, when the alternative to fossil fuels, namely renewable energy, was uh, uh, a lot more expensive than it is today. Uh, over the last decade, uh, renewable e the cost of renewable energy has dropped about 80%. And now for most African countries that are short of, of, of electricity and need to invest in energy infrastructure, Irrespective of climate change, it makes financial sense to actually invest in renewable energy. So the argument that you've articulated, you hear less and less often uh, because it is increasingly obvious from an economic point of view that if you want to deliver electricity to the masses in, in Africa, the best technologies to invest in are renewable energy technologies. And that includes South Africa, where renewables now are cheaper um, than coal-fired power. Yeah. Um, Alex, I mean, I think I have to pose the same question to you. I mean, some people do actually still maintain that actually this is not our problem. And I think even if you look at some of the data, there is probably a concentration of global emissions amongst a few countries rather than a lot. I think some of the data that I've seen is that 69 countries, just 69 countries, account for 97% of global emissions. And of course, if I'm part of the countries that are outside that net of 69, I can simply say, no, 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 go and speak to those people that are really creating the, 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 the world, the, the crisis um, uh, for the universe at large, rather than coming to me and telling me not to drive that car, not to do that, when the people that are fully responsible for it are probably not even listening to this conversation. 
Yeah, thanks for thanks for that question. I think it's an important one um, because I think often the way that sustainable development is framed is as if it's a burden, right? So you kind of make this. Uh, th there is this assumption that actually s developing in a sustainable way will hinder progress, but that's no longer the case, really. Um, and I think when you look at the evidence, it's very clear, actually, that moving towards sustainable development can be a much more robust and prosperous and inclusive form of development. Um, and, and I think that's really important now, particularly as countries discuss um, recovery and economic stimulus packages. The, the best way to invest to ensure prosperity is really renewable energy. Um, and it, it creates a lot more jobs than sticking with fossil fuels. Um, and in the South African context, where we face, you know, pretty dire load shedding, it is one of the fastest ways to bring on new energy supply to avoid load shedding. Um, it is also the most job-creating way to produce energy. And so we have all these really significant benefits. And so that's why, you know, we as the Climate Justice Coalition, for example, you know, we work with trade unions, we work with civil society organizations, and we're calling for a Green ESCOM, we're calling for a just transition to renewable energy, because we recognize that this is the best future available for us, not just for climate change. In fact, you can take climate change out of the picture altogether if you wanted to. For South Africa's uh, more equitable and prosperous uh, economic growth, and for the broader African continent's growth, it really is the better option. Um, and I think there's a lot of misinformation about you know, trying to still say that coal is feasible and that fossil fuels are the way forward. Um, while that was the case last century, it's not the case for this century anymore. And so if we really want to get ahead and invest in a sustainable, inclusive, and prosperous economy, really there's no choice but pushing for more sustainable development um, and powered by renewable energy. Yeah, that's quite important, Alex, but uh, Professor, I think some people have highlighted the fact that perhaps it is the cost of the transition that is really still holding us back. And of course, for us to be able to move from where we are, whether you're referring to ESCOM and its reliance on coal, for example, for us to move from that to something else, perhaps something far more sustainable, it's really the question of what is the cost, how can we shoulder the cost, and who, more importantly, should, um, you know, should bear the burden of the that shift is that still something that is that you see as being perhaps the one uh, stumbling block towards the transition itself? Just a question of costs. Well, there is the actual scientific data on the costs, and there is the perceptions of of the costs. And those two don't uh, align with each other. So last week, a, a, a very profound and significant report was released. Um, uh, by the CSIR and a Cape Town-based company called Meridian Economics. And what they did is, is to calculate in great detail uh, a years-long work with the, the Energy Center at the CSIR, which has got 70 staff and a group of about 10 modelers, so it's a very sophisticated research outfit. They tested this proposition, what's cheaper? Uh, and, and, they, and they demonstrated that from between now and 2050, if South Africa closes down the coal-fired power stations, uh, if ESCOM closes down the coal-fired power stations and replaces them with uh, renewable energy, the actual cost of energy uh, 
uh, uh, measured in terms of cents per kilowatt hour would actually go down uh, over, this, over, that, over this period. Whereas if we stayed on coal, the cost of energy is steadily going to go up, just as we have seen uh, of, of, over the last uh, decade or so, how the cost of how, how high uh, the increases have been. So one thing that is very unique about South Africa that you have to understand is that we've got a very old fleet of coal-fired power stations, and those coal-fired power stations cost more and more to keep going. And on certain dates, they have to be closed, according to government policy, but also for, the techni for technical reasons. And if you want to replace those coal-fired power stations with more coal-fired power stations, you're not going to find anybody to give you the money because nearly all the biggest investors in the world, uh, big banks, asset managers like, like BlackRock, all the big, big uh, development finance institutions have withdrawn from investing in coal, so no one's going to give you the money. So what are we going to replace the coal-fired power stations with? There's only one option, which is renewable energy. It's the cheapest, it can happen the quickest, and it is also potentially more equitable if you have uh, uh, public and social ownership at the local level of, of, much, of, of much of the infrastructure. So it's, uh, the cost is, is no longer the issue when it comes to the, the transition. What the problem is, the, is the perception. So the, the South African policymakers have not fully integrated uh, a view of the future without coal. And that's because the, the past has been so dependent on coal. And that's the problem. Afropolitans, we are talking climate change and sustainable development in the advent of COVID-19. This is a podcast sponsored by the Conrad Adenauer Foundation. It's part of a series of conversations we've been having about really what the world will look like after COVID-19. Alex, I want you to go into perhaps another angle and perhaps something that has been said by people who are saying, no, we can't afford this. And this will be the issue of indirect costs of the transition. And I think, for example, if somebody says, look, let us look at Bumalanga, for example, there's a lot of people working in the coal mines. And in South Africa, we know, unfortunately, that the cost, or sorry, the ability of people to transition from one type of job to another may tend to be difficult. So here we are saying, let us move on to a renewable energy paradigm. And then a lot of people, maybe even the unions representing people that are working in perhaps in the coal mines will raise their hand and say, well, actually, this creates new vulnerability for our workers, we do not think or we do not believe that that new model is going to absorb them. So therefore, there's a, a social cost associated with their transition. Is this something that we are factoring in into the conversations, in, into the conversations when we're trying to really say, actually, can we afford the transition or not? Thank you. That's a really important question. Um, and I think the, the costs must be viewed on both sides. And I think the question of you know, how our work is going to be impacted is really important. But I also want to start by thinking about the cost that we're paying already. If we think about the two latest coal-fired power plants that we put on board, they are some of the most expensive uh, power that we could have produced, Madupi and Kusile, and cost us over 400 billion, which is almost as much as the president's uh, stimulus package that he announced. Um, and we're paying in terms of higher electricity, and we're also paying in terms of fewer jobs that can be created if we move to renewable energy. So I think we're already paying really heavy costs for sticking with coal. But I think you're also right that there are costs 
involved in terms of if we transition to renewable energy, what happens to workers in the coal sector, in coal mining, and to the communities that are dependent on coal? And that's one of the vital questions when we think about what's called a just transition, so ensuring that justice is done for those that have dedicated their lives and worked their blood and sweat in the coal mines. Uh, we can't just leave them behind in the transition. And I think what's important is that trade unions themselves have been calling for a just transition. They have been calling for socially owned renewable energy. And so often there's a misrepresentation of trade unions, I think, in these discussions as if they're opposed to, to action. They're actually are very strong supporters of action um, within the Climate Justice Coalition. One of our partners is SAFTU, and they have been calling for transformative just transition, but they need action to protect their workers. They need action to protect communities. And so this is where government failure to implement policy is really one of the key stumbling blocks. They have promised, you know, government rhetoric has talked about a just transition, has talked about investing in those communities um, and in those workers, but it has not delivered. And I think this is where we must hold the government accountable for its failure to deliver here, because it is possible. Other countries are going ahead with robust just transition packages. Germany, for instance, negotiated a closure of all its coal power plants with trade unions at the table with investment programs. And we can do the same thing here in South Africa. And we can also use the cost savings from moving towards renewable energy to help invest in the, the communities that will be most impacted. And we can locate renewable energy in the hotspots like Mpumalanga and Limpopo through special economic zones that can help bring people into those sectors. But we can also fund important just transition packages and I know here, actually, Professor Swilling has done some really important research showing the feasibility of doing that. So maybe, uh, Professor Swilling, do you want to add on that? Yeah, sure. So there are about 80,000 uh, coal miners. Uh, about 56,000 of them are uh, producing coal directly for for, uh, for, for, for ESCOM. And then a, a significant proportion, around 50% of those workers are aged between 45 and 60. So we're going to be closing the coal-fired power stations and the coal mines over the next 20 years. And during that time, a significant number of those workers are going to be retiring anyway. Um, the, the, the remainder are going to fairly easily be absorbed into the uh, process of building the renewable energy infrastructures as well as the upstream industrialization that will take place. So uh, if you, in order to replace the coal, uh, the, the coal fired power stations with renewables, you have to build uh, about 3,000 megawatts, between three and 5,000 megawatts of renewable energy per annum for the next 30 years, starting in, in, in a year or two from now. Uh, and that's going to cr create between 30 and 50,000 jobs, permanent jobs. Uh, uh, because once you start building renewables, you can't stop. So you, you start building a, re a bunch of renewables this year. In 20 years' time, you have to replace them. So you, you, every year, you're building new coal-fired power—I mean, sorry, renewable energy power stations—and uh, that's really good from a job from a job creation uh, point of view. So if you do this right, 
if you close coal mines uh, in accordance with attrition rates and you ramp up the renewables build program uh, to absorb those workers that you need to absorb, nobody needs to lose their livelihoods, none. Yeah, that's an important uh, consideration, Professor Swilling. But I think also another angle to this is the cost. Well, I suppose the other players in the ecosystem, and I'm talking here in particular the pension funds and other investors who have the ability to at least move the needle in the right direction by perhaps withdrawing or withholding funding from the more fossil fuel-based types of projects. Are we seeing perhaps a shift towards the financing players themselves also saying, Actually, we'd also like to be around for the next um, 50 to 100 years. So therefore, we will only invest in the type of projects that ensure the sustainability of the world as we know it. Or are they still saying, well, if the, uh, if the project looks profitable, regardless of its environmental impact, I'll put the money. Now, the large majority of the biggest financial institutions have uh, internationally, but also some of the big ones in South Africa, have have taken positions on that matter and said that they are, will not be investing anymore in coal-fired power. So that, that position is, is very clear. Some of them are also trying to actively disinvest, but that's not really the situation at the moment. So all the investors in ESCOM, for example, uh, have, have said that they're not divesting, but they don't intend to invest more, which creates a problem uh, uh, for ESCOM. So if ESCOM starts closing coal-fired power stations and creating the opportunity for renewables, it's going to attract a lot of investment interest. So, so yes, I think you, you will find that some of the biggest asset managers like Investec and Future Growth, especially Future Growth, they are very keen on finding very significant large-scale opportunities, investment opportunities in the green economy and renewables in particular. Yeah, those are very important considerations because I think at the end of the day, we all have to make peace with the fact that occasionally it's the person with the paycheck who can direct policy, who can influence the direction of when a lot of the activities that we are talking about do end up being um, you know, uh, redirected. Alex, I think one of the um, other key issues that um, uh, we would have to deliberate on is the question of whether this particular pandemic then represents an opportunity for us to then actually perhaps get a lot more people involved in conversations that can show what it is that needs to be done. I saw some data indicating that, you know, at the height of the hard lockdowns across the world, there was a worldwide reduction in carbon emissions, for example. And this is obviously something that's quite important for everyone to take note of, because then the question must be, well, can we sustain those low levels, or are we simply going to say, oh, well, the status quo is high levels of emissions, so therefore after the lockdown, that's what's to be expected or can we then find a way to say, actually, how can we keep it at those low levels? Yeah, I think that's a really vital question right now. Uh, and we did see significant emissions reductions from people staying at home during the lockdown. Um, but I think the good news is that we don't have to rely on pandemics to drive down emissions. Climate change doesn't, action and sustainable development doesn't have to be painful like a lockdown. Um, the, the data is quite clear that if we invest in much more robust, sustainable and inclusive growth, what they're starting to call at the global level a Green New Deal, where we really put social and ecological justice together and transform our societies, that we can have a much better future. Um, 
And so there was a report, for instance, released by the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development showing the benefits globally of starting to really invest in this different vision where sustainable development and justice are at the heart of it. And through doing that, we can unlock massive opportunities, um, including creating 170 million more jobs than we would if we just stuck with the status quo. And I think for a lot of us, what we recognize is that the status quo was very broken, especially here in South Africa. We had a very deeply unequal economy and one that was driving significant uh, ecological degradation. We are one of the most carbon intensive economies in the world. Um, and we are also one of the most unequal. And it's not an accident that they come together. Extractive, harmful economies do drive a lot of inequality. And so if we want to create a more equitable uh, future, this moment where we are thinking about reinvesting, when we're thinking about rebuilding, coming out of the economic depression, which will be very intense, this is a moment where we can invest something much different, much more inclusive. And so we're, we're calling for you know, climate justice to be at the heart of a broader package for social justice. And we've seen the likes of SAFTU, of AMCU, um, of civil society formations coming out and calling for something like a radical Green New Deal, which is about investing in this way that is transformative and that has ecological and social justice at the heart. So I think we need to really take this opportunity and move that forward. Otherwise, we risk going back to a status quo that didn't work for the majority of South Africans and was driving deep ecological degradation. Thank you very much for that, Alex. Uh, Professor Swilling, uh, Alex uh, brought uh, to our to the to this conversation the global context, and of course, most of this will probably not really be effective if we still cannot find the universal consensus about what needs to be done. We do know that the Paris um, Agreement, for example, was something that took quite a long time to ink in, and obviously, it sort of got us as close as possible to universal consensus as you could get, until of course November 2016 happened in the United States installed as the head of its um, government, somebody who doesn't believe in such things. Just how big a setback has the Trump administration's treatment or disdain of climate change as an issue actually uh, set us back as, as the world? Well, I mean, obviously it's a setback at, at the political level in the sense that the uh, agreement negotiated in Paris in 2015 uh, although it wasn't um, Enforceable. It was at least an agreement by the by the whole world that it would be ideal if we could prevent global warming uh, beyond uh, two degrees uh, and ideally 1.5. And then, as you rightly say, um, after Trump was elected, uh, he withdrew the U.S. from that agreement. But what's 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 interesting though is that. Despite the fact that you have a president who is a champion of the coal sector, the coal sector has basically uh, plagued by bankruptcies. The largest coal companies in the U.S. are basically uh, in what we call business rescue. Um, And uh, the renewable sector in the U.S. this year is going to generate more renewable energy than the coal sector. Uh, So despite the fact that you have a climate denier and a pro-coal campaign in in the White House, the the economy, the U.S. economy has actually been decarbonizing. Um, And that just shows you that, you know, when you have a a president like what we've got who 
has said positive things about climate change and the need to transition to renewables, as has happened in, in most parts of the world, uh, you, you know, it just shows you um, that, that this is pretty much unstoppable. I mean, the global investment in renewables now is nearly $300 billion, and that's double the total investments in fossil fuel and nuclear combined. And so, you know, and, and that's because the, the cost of energy has dropped 80%. So there is, a, there is a financial and economic logic driving this that even uh, a climate denier like Trump can't really stop. And that's quite important, I suppose, if we're going to try and figure out what the world ought to do and what the world's consensus needs to be going forward. Um, Alex, I saw some interesting numbers actually relating to just the um, fact that the aviation sector, which we now know is on a global lockdown, it contributes up to 3% of emissions. And in the hard lockdown, South Africa itself saw a reduction of about 250,000 tons daily in carbon emissions. And I suppose the question that a lot of people are asking is to say, well, there will obviously be a time when the lockdown ends, when the corona pandemic is over, but is it possible for us to then do things a bit differently? I think perhaps a simple example will be before corona, you and I were driving to work. We now know that actually when you and I don't have to drive to work, there are positive benefits for um, the world at large. Do we then say we are going to cycle to work after this crisis? We're going to carpool? Are these the types of conversations that we now should be amplifying when we actually have the support of actual data that says, look at the benefits. Yeah, thanks for that. It's a really important question. Um, individual action plays an important role, and I think we do see partly that, uh, you know, individuals can reduce their own emissions through their lifestyle choices. But I think what's also really important is that a lot of us did drive less, a lot of us flew less, and emissions only dropped 9%, which is a lot, but it's not as much as we need. And so the, the really big changes we need are infrastructure changes. They are investments in shifting our technologies, which are out of the control of individuals uh, to a significant extent. And this is where government policy is vital. Um, so, for instance, in the aviation sector, South Africa could play a very interesting role in the future in producing green fuels for aviation if we had the right government policy. So, Sasol, you know, now produces coal to liquids to produce fuel, but in a different future, they could produce renewable energy to liquids to produce green hydrogen, which could uh, fuel a lot of transportation. But what we need is really good government policy to invest in the research, the development. We need forward-thinking uh, ways of engaging with this. And other countries are starting to really move significantly on this. I just take the example of Tasmania and Australia. They're aiming not for 100% renewable energy, they're aiming for 200% renewable energy because they want to export renewable hydrogen because they see that as a major investment opportunity. And we as South Africa are so well positioned with the sun, with the wind that we have, that we could really be leading in this. And so, yeah, I'd say individual action is really important, but we mustn't lose sight of the broader picture, the broader infrastructure, and the investments we need to make to really uh, grapple and build the future that we need. Professor Swilling, Alex speaks about, you know, individual action, but we know that the role that the state can play in directing and influencing behavior, should we be expecting more from the South African government? 
Yeah, I think we, we definitely should. Um, the, what, we, what we need is um, greater alignment between the, the, the Minister of Mineral uh, Energy, um, Minerals and Energy, and with the Minister of uh, Public Enterprises. Uh, because, because the Minister of Public Enterprises controls ESCOM and the Minister of, of, of Minerals and Energy controls energy policy. And these two have to align uh, around a commitment to accelerate the decarbonization of the economy by accelerating the closure of the coal-fired power stations and creating the, the policy, regulatory, and financial environment for a very, very significant ramp-up uh, of, of renewables. But just to, to hook on to Alex's point, that, would, that should also include putting in place the appropriate policy framework for the, the green hydrogen economy. Hydrogen gets made, gets made from water, and ESCOM uses 292 billion liters of water every year for its coal-fired power stations. As they close those coal-fired power stations, that water could be used for uh, the, the production of, of green hydrogen. And the amount of hydrogen you can produce from that amount of water is far more than we need. Uh, so we could we could export it. So there's a imagine driving cars powered by hydrogen, and the only effluent is water, which gets evaporated into the atmosphere and comes down as rain. You know, there's an incredibly beautiful cycle that's available if we get policy alignment, and it won't cost the government very, very extra extra funds. Whereas if the government doesn't do this, it has to keep the old system going, which which is going to increase the threat of more and more bailouts to keep ESCOM afloat in order to keep the lights on. And we know that we definitely cannot afford any more bailouts of ESCOM, but perhaps even more importantly, we cannot afford not to be able to live in for our future generations. And on that note, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you very much for your time. This is Professor Mark Swilling from the University of Stellenbosch and Alex Denferna from the Climate Justice Coalition, Afropolitans. This has been the latest installment in the podcast between TIFM and the Conrad Adenauer Foundation looking at beyond corona, life after the pandemic. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is brought to you by Kaya FM in partnership with the Conrad Adenauer Foundation.